Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another episode of the Animals to the Max podcast. I'm Corbin Maxey. Thank you for listening to the show. I appreciate it. Wow, do we have a fascinating discussion today. Today, we're going to talk about anthropomorphism in animals and how it impacts our understanding of animal behavior. It is a very fascinating topic, and if you're listening to this and you're like, Antha, well, who? What? I mean, can you explain a little bit more? Anthropomorphism is when we give non-human animals human traits. So let's say I look at my dog and I say, oh, Zoe looks happy. Or I go to the zoo and I see a monkey and I say, oh, that monkey looks sad. That is anthropomorphizing. And there's a lot of people out there who attribute human-like traits to animals, and it could be good, it could be bad. And on today's show, I have this discussion with wildlife educator Tiana Selick. She goes by the Instagram handle This Wild Fauna. Tiana actually was a guest on my show back in July. She was episode 133 when we talked about backyard wildlife. She pitched me this idea and I said 100%. Let's, you know, talk about this. Come back on the show. She is one of my favorite wildlife educators I follow on Instagram and one of my favorite people I've ever had on the show because she's so well spoken. So, during the discussion we talk about anthropomorphism. We give a number of examples, the pros, the cons. Some of the topics we get into include Dr. Jane Goodall and how back in the 60s when she came back from, you know, studying chimps in Africa and she came back with her findings and, you know, she really gave these chimps human names. She called them he and she instead of it. There was a big uproar in the scientific community. And so we talk about that. We talk about anthropomorphism and wildlife rescue, how it's good, how it could be bad. It's springtime right here in North America. And a lot of people are coming across baby fawns that look abandoned. They're coming across hares on the ground. And, you know, there are people that pick these animals up and think, oh my goodness, I need to save this animal and take it to a rescue and cuddle it and keep it comfortable and give it comfort. When in reality, animals like baby fawns and hares, they are left alone for long periods of time. It's completely natural by their parents. And so we discuss that and how it could actually be pretty uh, detrimental to the animal. We also dive into a very sticky conversation about social media and how anthropomorphizing on social media can actually harm animals. And, you know, we talk about some of these big Instagram accounts and TikTok accounts where we have monkeys and diapers, uh, chimpanzees, which I know they're not monkeys, they're apes, but, you know, chimpanzees eating ice cream cones and chimpanzees smiling for cameras and how this behavior, it's actually not good. It actually is causing the animals distress and we just interpret these behaviors. It's really cool. Tiana actually gives me a pop quiz, just kind of me trying to interpret this behavior that's commonly seen on social media. So you'll have to stay tuned to see how good I did on my pop quiz. We uh, then end the conversation with how anthropomorphism can actually help species regarding conservation. It's great. So I promise this is a fascinating topic. You guys, please stay tuned for the whole show. And as always, if you want to hear more, join us for the after show. Boy, oh boy, this is an interesting after show. We talk about being a vegetarian. We talk about the you know animal care industry and how in zoos and wildlife rescue, you do have to euthanize animals 
to feed them to other animals. We talk about her thoughts on that. We talk about just a bunch of interesting topics in the after show. Hopefully we don't offend anybody, but hey, we're just having a conversation. So full disclosure there, it is a very fascinating interview. If you do want to join us for the after show, just join us. It's patreon.com slash animals to the max. Before we get to the show, I encourage you to please leave a rating and a review on whichever podcasting platform you listen to. It helps us out a lot. It helps the show get out there. Literally, it just takes 30 seconds. Give us a five-star rating. I love reading the reviews. Like, especially if they're like, hey, I like this episode or hey, I'd love for you to talk about that. I really, really appreciate it. And once again, it helps the show get to more listeners around the world who care about animals and who want to hear about people who dedicate their lives to them. Okay, with that said, let's talk about anthropomorphism. Please welcome to the show this wild fauna. Tiana, how are you doing today? Thanks so much, Gorbin. Thanks for having me back. Okay, so listeners, I had to I had to message you. I was like, can we please like start 15 minutes later? Because I was I was I was running late chopping kale, and I was like, wait a second, Tiana would totally understand this. Hundred <laughs> percent. Animals come first. Yeah, I was like chopping diets for the animals. I'm like running around like a madman trying to get my morning routine done before the podcast. So thank you for understanding. I appreciate it. Of course, I love that. That's part of your morning routine. All I did was make a coffee. Really? Oh man, I did that too. I've already had three cups. Can you tell? I'm like, Ooh. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know, right? I know. Well, welcome back to the show. And by the way, listeners, if uh, you have not heard Tiana's first interview, we actually talk about backyard wildlife. And that episode, if you do want to go back and listen to it, is episode 133, which is, uh, yeah, which was back in July of 2020. So anyway, you could go check that out. But you sent me an Instagram message and you pitched me a really interesting topic. Can we talk about it? Yeah, for sure. So I wanted to talk to you today about anthropomorphism. And uh, I kind of wanted to talk about this because uh, I follow a lot of wildlife accounts, including your own on uh, on various social media platforms. And, you know, regardless of what type of animal work you're involved with, whether it's education or veterinary care or research, anthropomorphizing is something that we all do all day long, subconsciously without even realizing it. And we very rarely stop to talk about it or to think about how the way that we talk about animals and interpret animal behavior actually impacts how we treat them. And that treatment can then extend into conservation efforts um, or, or really dangerous and unfortunate situations. So I kind of wanted to explore a couple different things with you today and just kind of look at some of the pros and cons of this behavior that we engage in every single day, uh, maybe share some funny stories with you, some unfortunate stories with you, and ultimately just kind of look at uh, what the real world impacts of this behavior are for wildlife. Yes, and if someone's listening that's like, Antha, Antha Wahoo, what is she talking about? Can you explain that a little bit, anthropomorphism? Yeah, so anthropomorphism is uh, essentially attributing uh, human emotions, traits, behaviors or intentions onto someone or something non-human. So a simple example of this is, you know, anyone with a pet, of course, you know your uh, your pet has a personality, Um, but even simple things like, uh, you know, talking about them wanting something or talking about them thinking something or imagining what they might be dreaming about, you know, we're making these assumptions based on the way that our brains operate and what our cognitive abilities are, where most pet owners don't actually deeply understand 
the ethology or psychology of canines well enough to know that. Uh, so yeah. That's so fascinating. And it is interesting. I'm happy you brought this up. And when you pitched me the idea, I was like 100%. Because I think, I think it's something that should be explored. Because I grew up in the zoo community. And back in my teenage days, it was very frowned upon to like to tell the zoo visitors the animal names. It was very like, no, no, that is a species of animal. But I've seen this morph into, as we've gotten to the social media age, that now zoos are embracing, um, and I'm just giving zoos an example, but wildlife rescues, veterinary care, they're embracing naming animals. And uh, anyway, so I, I've seen a shift and change. So I think it's very fascinating. I don't have, have you seen that shift too? Absolutely. Yeah, and we can talk a little bit about that, how, how perceptions of, um, anthropomorphism have changed over time in the scientific community and the zoo communities and sort of even the, the social media world because it's it's quite a pervasive thing nowadays. Um, but having worked in a zoo, it was something that I experienced all day long and, and my job was literally to interpret the behavior of animals for zoo visitors. And it was really interesting seeing and hearing what they thought the animal was communicating uh, and then knowing what they actually were. So we can definitely get into some of that today. But anthropomorphism is something that goes back thousands and thousands of years. Um, you know, even in cave art, if you look at Paleolithic cave art, like 40,000 years ago, um, there were anthropomorphized uh, visuals of animals on walls. And so I think it's something that, you know, whether you're looking at folklore or old myths, it's something that's been really pervasive in, in human you know, culture, if you can say that, for uh, a really long time, which speaks to the fact that probably to some extent it's something that's innate, something that would have had some sort of evolutionary advantage. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't we wouldn't have have been doing it. So, just really, really interesting to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Let's dive in. I'm so into this right now. Having my cup of coffee, I'm ready. And I love how you came prepared. Did you write notes for this? I am so impressed. Of course. Oh of my course God. I, I am so impressed. You are just, yeah, no. And so, well, I, I just cannot wait to go into this. Let's talk about it. Awesome. So I kind of wanted to start just super basic talking about the power of language. Uh, we talk about animals all day long. Uh, even if you're not interested in animals, you probably talk about animals and, and experience animals in your day. They're part of everything. They're part of the TV shows that we watch growing up. They're the mascots of our favorite sports teams. They're on logos of products that we use every day. And we'll catch ourselves, I know I catch myself, using all these little phrases and metaphors and analogies without thinking. Like we'll say things like, um, you know, I'm looking really ratty today. Or uh, <laughs> Wait, you just off. looked at me and said I'm looking ratty. Are you kidding no. me, Tiana? That's not fair. Not you, Corbin, me. Or no, like... Oh, that's so right. Or like, oh, I just feel like a couch, but well, I guess a couch potato is not an animal, but like, I feel like a slug. I don't know. Or you're moving right, as slow like, as a sloth. Yeah, you're moving like a sloth or okay. um, that yeah. man is pig headed or I'm hungry <laughs> at a bear or it's a doggy dog world. Like you hear them all day long, right? And when you become aware of them, they're everywhere. Hold on. They're so pervasive. What is pig headed? I've never been called that. What is pig -headed? that? Pig yeah. Well, and you're... It must not apply to you then, Corbin. But, what is it? Uh, Big-headed is someone who's, uh, you know, quite stubborn, kind of like hard-headed. Oh, um, hard-headed. A little okay. Neanderthalish in some, <laughs> some okay. aspects. 
right. Yeah, but you know the way that we talk about animals, uh, it, it sort of leaks into our subconscious, especially when those connections that we're making, the connotations, the things that we're implying, are negative. Um, and I think all of these these phrases, these concepts that we have of what those animals are like, reinforce certain paradigms. And quite often, when we're using this sort of language, the paradigm that we're reinforcing is that you know humans are kind of at the top. Just below that is our, is our pets, you know, the animals that we pamper and we love and they sleep in our beds. Below that is wildlife. And at the very, very bottom of that is wildlife that we have deemed less intelligent, maybe less emotional, less charismatic. And the reason I bring up this hierarchy is because later I want to talk about the role of anthropomorphizing in conservation. And it's really important that we recognize that we have sort of set up this hierarchy where we are dominant and animals are beneath us. Even if you think about things that we say, like uh, quite often, you know, you might say something like, humans and animals have a lot in common. That instantly sounds wrong to me. Human and animal, those are not mutually exclusive terms. Humans are animals, right? But we've created this disconnect through the language that we're using where we have made ourselves exceptional. We have made ourselves other or separate from the animal world. And we use that to justify certain actions and certain behaviors. And so I kind of want to highlight that as, you know, kind of a foundation for this uh, this conversation because it shapes everything that comes after. Man, I never really, uh, yeah. Oh gosh, this is, it's fascinating. I never really, I, I call my sister a sloth and my wife all the time. And I don't know, maybe I should stop doing that. Is that, would that be offensive to you <laughs> if someone called you a sloth? I mean, I personally think they're adorable, so I might take that as a compliment. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Okay, continue. <laughs> yeah, so there's actually been a lot of uh, different research, different studies that have been done on how anthropomorphizing um, might influence the way that we treat animals. And so one study I found was really interesting. Um, these researchers were basically interested in exploring if, given the fact that using dehumanizing language on humans causes us to mistreat them. For example, if you refer to someone as a weasel or a rat or a dog, you know, now you have a negative perception of them and you might mistreat them. These researchers were interested in finding out if the reverse was true. Does applying humanizing language to animals improve our treatment of them? And they found that it did. Now, this was just one study. It was a small study. It did have its limitations. Uh, but I thought that that was, that was really interesting because it kind of suggests that, like I was saying, the way that we think about animals and we talk about them, these belief systems that we develop then motivate our actions, our, our behavior towards those animals. And another study kind of similar uh, found that people who tend to attribute human traits to animals are less willing to eat them. So if you feel like an animal has the same or similar emotions and feelings and thoughts as you, suddenly the thought of applying a different, you know, moral treatment to them feels maybe kind of cringy to you. And then, you know, a third study, this one was really interesting too, found that the level of moral concern or consideration that we have for an entity is at least partially influenced by whether or not we believe that that entity has a mind. So if we don't think a certain animal has a brain, has feelings, 
you know, a lot of people think this of fish or insects, then we don't have to treat them the same way that we treat our dogs and our cats at home. Can I say so, something so interesting? Yeah. This happened to me yesterday. We were uh, filming with my with my YouTube crew in the alligator pool, and I and I had mentioned that one of our alligators, Chompers, is starting to eat the fish, the tilapia, which I was so bummed because I love my tilapia, and the fish. And uh, anyway, so we have a divider between the pool. The fish have now learned that if I'm over on Chompers' side, I'm going to get eaten. So I'm going to go over on our other alligator side where Sonny's too fat to catch them. We have a little fish door. And my YouTube guy looked at me and said, are you serious? Like fish can like they're, they, they know like not to go over there. And I was like, absolutely. And it's interesting because he had no idea that like, no fish actually are a lot more intelligent than I think people give them credit for. Like they're 100%. They know like, Oh, I'm going to get eaten over there. So they stay over there now, which I find fascinating. Absolutely. So I think, you know, what it really comes down to is it's, it's obviously wrong to think that animals don't have thoughts or feelings or motivations. Multiple studies, there's tons of literature, as well as a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest that they do, right? It's, it's wrong to think that animals do not have thoughts and feelings like we do. But it's equally wrong to think that their thoughts and feelings are exactly like ours. And so there's a really fine line there where you know humans we're we're a pretty self-absorbed species we understand things best when we can relate them to ourselves when we can apply a familiar framework that we do understand which is our thoughts and feelings onto something else but it's really really important that when we're working with or observing animals we do so as objectively as we possibly can to do justice to their unique cognitive abilities um, so there's absolutely pros and cons to anthropomorphizing uh, and i want to get into a couple of those that's great. Awesome. Uh, I was thinking maybe we start with the cons, uh, some of the, the bad things, and then that way we can end on a, on a high note. How's that sound? That sounds amazing. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, uh, I have a science background, and uh, in the academic world, in the kind of formal scientific community, anthropomorphizing, like you mentioned, <laughs> is something that's really frowned upon. So frowned yeah. upon. A lot of people, they really don't like it. They think it leads to a lack of objectivity in research, especially observational research. And, you know, there's definitely something to be said for that. That can definitely be true. You know, if you have preconceived notions of how a certain animal is going to behave or you let your emotion override your objectivity, you're going to end up with some skewed results for sure. And it's really interesting even looking back at my education, thinking of the way that some things were explained to me, you know, anthropomorphism, as much as my professors frowned upon it, they did it constantly, <laughs> you know, it was in, in the way that they taught, even saying things like, uh, you know, maybe you're talking about atoms and you're, you're saying something like a proton wants to find an electron or a bacteria wants to reproduce. They don't want anything. You know, these are, uh, you know, structures, biological structures who that don't that don't have brains the way that we un, we understand them um but using that sort of language for me as a student that really did help me to understand those concepts you know so so there's a role in science education for anthropomorphism but for the most part it has been uh really frowned upon and i think you know one scientist and and science communicator that's played a really big role in my life uh, was Jane Goodall. Um, she really inspired me as a young age to 
pursue my interests uh, in wildlife and conservation. But Jane Goodall is kind of controversial in the scientific community because she heavily utilized anthropomorphism in her observational research. So um, for people who might not be familiar uh, with her work or with her, her history, Jane Goodall didn't have uh, a science background of any sort before she started working with chimpanzees. She was a young woman in her 20s working as a secretary when she traveled to Africa and met the paleontologist uh, Louis Leakey. And Louis Leakey was really interested in apes um, and, and their connection to us. At the time, there wasn't you know, this hard genetic evidence that we were related to them. But he had his suspicions and he basically wanted to send someone out to observe these animals in their natural habitat and bring back information about how they behaved to see if he could make any connections. And I think it's really, really interesting that he could have sent out any scientist mm. and he chose secretary you know and uh so she went in there with n no knowledge or or notions or assumptions about these animals and really just observed them but what she was criticized for uh when she went to go study the chimps in Gombe national park in tanzania in the 60s was her sort of unorthodox and what some people called anti-scientific methods so instead of using numbers uh for the animals she gave them names and instead of referring to them in her notes as it, she used pronouns. And she noted that they had personalities, that they seemed to have motivations um, and emotions. And a lot of people really didn't like this, but the, the work that came out of her observations, the findings were, were groundbreaking. She discovered things we'd never known about chimpanzees, that they lived in these complex uh, matrilineal, uh, family groups that they uh, used tools. This was huge. They used tools. We're not the only ones. <laughs> they ate meat. Uh, they'd long been considered to be herbivores and that they actually engaged in complex behaviors like warfare. And so her work was, was huge, but I actually think one of the most significant things that she achieved that she did was she inspired an entire generation of wildlife enthusiasts, conservationists, and animal advocates by being able to connect us to these animals in, the way, in a way that wasn't purely scientific, in a way that was emotional, because she was able to empathize with these animals, and now we're able to do so too. And so a lot of incredible conservation work has come out of what she did. So some scientists might criticize Jane Goodall for not being objective. But given that scientists at the time were really set in their ways, they really believed that animals did not have behaviors, emotions, thoughts, and feelings. Could be argued that they weren't being objective either. Yeah. So I think she's a she's a really great example of how, you know, it might be controversial to use anthropomorphism in the scientific community, but there is a time and a place for it. Yeah, and I and Dr. Lewis Leakey, he picked her because she wouldn't have any preconceived notion. She was like she was she was like a blank slate almost, and that worked in his advantage to all of our advantages. Because honestly, if they would have stuck a stuffy scientist there, first of all, I don't think they would have stuck it out like Jane did. Jane's, I mean, her books are incredible, by the way. That first first year she spent in Gombe is just incredible. Like the you know with her and being isolated. I know her mom was there for a portion, but then she left. Yeah, she inspired a whole generation. So. Yeah, he made a great decision. I'm so happy she went back and got her education. <laughs> to, you know what I mean? Yeah. To solidify it to all 
all the people because there was it was almost it was an uproar in the scientific community about her findings and people were you know uh very upset so yeah and you know maybe for good reason i i think anthropomorphism in in the wrong hands <laughs> can be can be dangerous you know mm -hmm. um it, it doesn't just simply misinform us it can put us in really dangerous situations and i've seen this the most through my work in wildlife rehabilitation. Um, I have uh, experience in a couple of different wildlife centers. Uh, I have seen a variety of different animals from different taxa be brought in. And I see this time and time again, it doesn't matter if it's a, it's a mammal or a reptile. There are a lot of well-intentioned but misinformed people who will stumble upon injured or orphaned wildlife and anthropomorphize them to the point where they assume that that animal wants or needs a particular type of treatment, which not only places the animal in danger, because now they're very likely to receive inadequate care from an untrained professional, but it puts that person uh, in danger as well of things like disease transmission or, you know, the animal employing their self-defense mechanisms. So a couple examples that I can think of one that uh, was really interesting to me was a few years back, I was uh, interning at a center in California where quite frequently raccoons would come in. And raccoons uh, are a common rabies vector uh, species. And uh, so we had to be really careful with these animals. And what was really interesting was that if you observed their behavior, you could almost predict which ones were carrying rabies before you did any testing on them at all. So raccoons are very, uh, very active animals, very curious animals, very busy animals, and they can be hard to care for in a rehab setting because they are so tactile and clever that they're kind of escape artists. So oftentimes I would open their enclosure to, you know, clean or feed or whatever it was I was doing that day. And I'd kind of have to block the opening with my entire body because as soon as I started opening the door, five little baby raccoons are trying to pile out and they're so active and they're all over the place. Every now and then you'd open the door and the raccoon would just be sitting in the corner, nice and calm, relaxing the way that a kitten might, you know, mm. taking a nap. Now to the untrained eye, you might think, oh, this raccoon, raccoon is calm. They are relaxed. And what we were told is if you open that crate and the raccoon is not <laughs> trying to clamber its way out, you shut that door, don't touch anything, and immediately go to your supervisor and report this. A calm raccoon is, is so unnatural um, to the point where this is actually thought to be like a symptom of, of rabies in them. It causes a behavioral shift that can be very misleading and put someone, again, in a very dangerous situation. These are cute, beautiful animals. Can you imagine a kid seeing a nice, relaxed, calm raccoon and thinking, oh, I'm just going to go pick it up, right? So that's just one example right there. But um, also things like uh, this time of year, it's spring, and it's quite common to see a baby, uh, a baby hare or, or maybe a baby deer, a fawn, mm -hmm. all by themselves. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people will immediately think, it's abandoned. It's lonely. It wants me to, to pick it up and to take care of it. Again, well-intentioned, but misinformed because both of these species are animals where when they are quite young and vulnerable, it's perfectly normal for their mom to leave them for a certain amount of time so that her scent and her size 
does not draw the attention of predators. And so now that well-intentioned but misinformed citizen picks up that animal, whisks it away to a rehabilitation center, effectively making it an orphan and separating it from the care of its mother. Um, another one is uh, really small, cute animals like, like you know, hares. People will often think, uh, or baby birds, people will often think if it's alone, if it's, if it's cold, you know, it just looks so vulnerable, it must want to be held. It must want to be comforted because, well, hey, that's what small, tiny humans want when they feel scared and vulnerable. But think about this for a minute. Rabbits are, first of all, ground-dwelling species. For them to be picked up, lifted off the ground is absolutely terrifying and goes completely against their nature. But second of all, they are naturally a prey species. For them to be restrained triggers their prey instincts. Now they want to fight or, or flee, uh, specifically flee. And when they can't do that, the acute stress that you are putting that animal under is so extreme that animals like hares, they, they can actually die from it. Their hearts can beat so fast, they just, they die. And um, so this is something where a lot of people will say, but hey, my, my dog, my cat at home, they love to be held. Okay, well, you know, those two animals, first of all, are predators. They don't have the same physiological response to restraint. But second of all, those are animals that have been artificially selected for thousands of years for their behavioral traits, to trust humans and to cooperate with us. Rabbits have not. Rabbits have been, have been bred for their meat and for their fur, for, for physical traits. They still have those wild behaviors inside of them. And so anyway, long story short, examples of situations where our treatment of animals can put them in really stressful and harmful situations. If we're applying our own desires, our own emotions, our own thought processes to a species that does not share them. Yeah. And I have to, you know, what story comes to mind? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, a couple of years ago, someone, they were, uh, it was a family going through Yellowstone National Park and they saw a bison calf abandoned and they picked the calf up, put it in their vehicle and went to park authorities. And it was this huge uproar because the park authorities, they had to put the calf down because they, they yeah. couldn't find the mom. They didn't want the spread of brucellosis and all this stuff. And what happened is you had these people trying to do something good and just, in reality, they should have just left it alone. And it was, it, it is hard to resist those temptations. I'm not going to lie. If I'm driving to Yellowstone and I see this, you know, this baby on the side of the road, I mean, it's hard not to think like, oh my gosh, it's been abandoned, but we have to resist those temptations and those emotions. Absolutely. And, you know, empathy is a, is a beautiful thing. And, and we can talk a little bit more about that later. I definitely want to touch on that, but, um, I think that good intentions without good education <laughs> yeah. can sometimes be more disastrous um, than just simply leaving the situation alone. And it's actually interesting that you bring up um, Yellowstone because an animal that comes to mind for me quite often when I think about anthropomorphism and how our perceptions or beliefs about an animal shape our treatment of them, gray wolves do come to mind for me. And I think that they're, they're a really good example of how 
um, things can quickly landslide when when we apply or assume certain intentions in animals that do not have them. Um, can we talk about wolves for a sec? Yes. Yeah. And by the way, we have featured wolves more on this show than any other animal. I think I've done like five or six episodes and I'm like, holy yeah. crap, I need to stop bringing the... Anyway, I, but yes, I'm a huge fan of wolves because yes, I'm trying to, you know, change people's perceptions. They have a horrible reputation. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to go on for too long. I'm sure you've got all sorts of wolf experts that you've had, but in the context of this conversation, the reason I bring them up is because... You know, wolves are one of those animals that is pervasive in cultures across the world. They're they're in cave art, they're in folklore, they're in, you know, myths and stories and different cultures present them in different ways. You know, in some cultures they're seen as really cooperative, intelligent, wise animals and in others they're seen as these bordering on demonic, violent, bloodthirsty mm -hmm. animals. And mm -hmm. here in North America, humans and wolves coexisted for thousands of years and and the issues didn't really arise until Europeans started colonizing the continent and one of the issues was that with the removal of bison um, and the import of livestock you know wolves were were going after some of these animals at the time and it was really easy to spin the story of wolves intentions into something that was bloodthirsty and violent. They were sort of this symbol of the untamed and they needed to be they needed to be dealt with. And so the extermination programs um, in North America, um, kind of in the 1800s, were were so extreme. The bounty programs that they had and the anti-wolf propaganda and um, these control programs, they were awful, but they were really effective, you know, by the early mid 1900s wolves had been almost extirpated from from the United States at least the lower 48 states and you know when you think about the fact that there were hundreds of thousands of them before colonization and by 1960 I think there were a few hundred left honestly it's kind of a wonder that there were any left mm. after these efforts to essentially push them to the brink of extinction and that was the power of of human perception you know if if we believe that wolves want to harm us that impacts our our treatment of them but you know in the 1970s those perceptions began to change for a number of different reasons you know ecological studies were finding that wolves played a really important uh, role biologically but also public perception was changing through news and, and television and new media sources that were helping to inform the public. And um, it, it's because of those those changes in perceptions that the reintroduction of wolves in areas like Yellowstone were so effective and that today there's so many more advocates for those animals, but they stand out to me as an example of, you know, the extreme danger that we can put animals into if we let our our emotions and specifically an unrooted emotion like fear motivate us to where we are no longer objectively observing these animals for what they are and for what they actually want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, the wolf is the number one animal people go to Yellowstone to see. And they bring yeah. in, there are studies, I don't know the exact number, my buddy Casey Anderson, I don't know if you're familiar, he's a Nat Geo expert and he's a large predator expert, but he was saying like one wolf will bring in, they've done studies, millions and millions of dollars 
of just from tourism because people want to see them. I mean, people want to see them. So I am so happy that perception has shifted. But I mean, even if you cross the borders into Yellowstone, that's a whole another issue. You have people who, you know, kill them. And anyway, that's like I said, another another can of worms so we're still trying to fight for them but i'm so happy with the new media and there is interest in in conserving them because they are so beneficial absolutely yeah and you mentioned media i mean nowadays media and specifically i want to say social media plays a really huge role Mm -hmm. in the perceptions that we have of certain species and i know that you're active in that community and i'm sure you see this a lot this is kind of the next topic i wanted to discuss with you was how social media plays a role in this. Um, you know, I, I've tried to curate my feed as, as well as I can to show me only the things that I want to see. And, and I do this by reporting the things that I think have have no place on these platforms, one of which is animal abuse. And, you know, in my opinion, when I see things like, you know, a chimpanzee living in a house somewhere in Las Vegas wearing clothes and eating an ice cream cone, hmm. that to me... Uh, could fall under the category of animal abuse. And you'll see all sorts of different things. I mean, there's people who have large carnivorous cats as pets and and all these different things. And, you know, it's really easy to assume when we see these videos, especially the ones that go viral, that the animal is okay with what's happening in the video or the photo because they aren't expressing a behavior that you read as distress. But just because they aren't saying it in the language that you can understand doesn't mean they aren't saying it. And the people who are experts on these species can quite often identify in these videos and in these photos that the animals are, in fact, communicating distress. And uh, this is where we have to be really careful. So. Are you up for a little pop quiz, Corbin? I am. I am up for it. I can't tell you how great I'm gonna do, but let let let's see it. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. You know, honestly, you're gonna help me prove my case more if you do terribly. So. Oh really? And by the way, I do have the ability to edit. No, I'm kidding. I promise I won't edit this out. We're gonna keep it raw, organic. Okay, go ahead. Awesome. So I've chosen a group that should be pretty easy. I've chosen primates. I'm gonna okay. give you a couple of examples of, let's say, certain facial expressions or Mm. behaviors that a primate might exhibit. And I want you to tell me what you think the animal is communicating through that facial expression or behavior. Are you ready? I'm ready for it. Go. Awesome. Okay. So let's start with a a chimpanzee. You've got a chimpanzee in front of you and he is grinning. A big ear to ear grin showing you all of his beautiful teeth. Just kind of like how I'm grinning right now. What do you think that chimp is communicating to you? Well, I'll tell you what. Chimpanzees terrify me. (laughs) So I, for good reason, that would be an aggressive behavior. That would be an aggressive gesture, I believe, with that grinning. I don't think that is something that would be good to be with a chimp. Yeah, so you're you're on the right track. It's definitely not. uh, It's not joy. No, it's not joy. It's it's not a smile like a human like you and me. I would say no. That's yeah, aggression or feeling threatened, kind of just like uneasy. Like that's what I would interpret. Yeah. So yeah. So for chimps, it's the latter. It's sort of distress, discomfort, bordering on fear. It's Mm. it's more of a grimace, although it can look like a grin. So for someone who might be looking at a picture of a chimpanzee grinning, licking an ice cream cone might look innocent enough, is absolutely not. How about um, a, a macaque? If Ooh. a macaque is smiling at you in that same way, what does that mean? 
Oh, so I'm not a primate expert, but they would primates. I'm just, I just, I, I think that'd be aggression. Honestly, I just don't think that that. Are you talking about the Japanese macaque, or just a macaque in general? Yeah, just generally. I don't know facial. I would say what aggression. At close, um, so fear, but in this case, a submissive fear. Like oh. they're so afraid, they're to the point where they're like, "You win this round." Like I am. I'm submitting, I admit defeat. Oh my God. Okay, good to know. Okay. Or how about this one? Okay, you've got a mandrill. Oh. And it's yawning. What do and, you reckon that means? Big and, yawn. And everyone think uh, Rafiki from The Lion King. I love yes. mandrills. I love, they're just beautiful. Yeah. One of my favorite ones. A big yawn. I would say that that would be an act of like, I'm trying to show you how big I am. Look at my canines. Look at me. I'm, you know what I mean? Kind of like, ah, is it like some yeah. sort of a threat almost? Yeah. So he's definitely not sleepy in no. this case. He's very, very anxious, and what he's going to try to do is he's going to yawn to show off those inch-long canines yep. to remind you that he can harm you, but he really doesn't want to have to. Mm, yep, yep. Okay. They're beautiful, by the way. And the canines, oh, my God. Yeah. When they yawn, oh, yeah. They're the bright, if you're wondering, like the bright faces, the bright reds, yeah. and the blues. Okay, yep. Stunning animals, yeah. How about this one? Okay, this is one I've seen, unfortunately, a lot on Instagram a slow loris. Oh. So for people who aren't familiar, a slow loris is a small primate, uh, a prosimian. They're probably most closely related to lemurs, I think. And uh, because they are small and cute and cuddly, a lot of people assume they make good pets. And I've seen videos online, people tickling slow loris, and they throw their little hands up. Oh, what do you think that means? Oh my God, they're stressed. Oh, that's horrible. They're stressed. And are those the guys with the big eyes? They're so cute, and they just yeah, yeah, yeah they're stressed. That is not a happy. That is not a happy. Like I'm having fun. That's like a terrifying. Yeah. Oh my God, get me out of here. Yeah, they're stressed, and it's actually triggering a defense response. So slow loris are really interesting animals. They actually have uh, these little glands under their armpits. Um, and the secretions from those glands, when mixed with their saliva, make for a pretty toxic bite. So when they're lifting their arms up, they're making an effort to employ that defense strategy. Um, so these are a few examples of situations where people might think that they understand what that facial expression mm -hmm. is. And most people would be wrong. And I used primates as my examples here on purpose, because if we cannot successfully interpret the behavior of our closest living relatives, other primates, what gives us the confidence that we can read the behavior of more distantly related species like birds, reptiles, or large carnivores, right? Yeah, so- yes. Hold on, Tiana, you have to let me know. How did I do on my quiz? I will give you I'm going to give you an A. An A? Uh, oh, oh my God. That is so because sweet. That is so knew, nice. Yeah. You knew that every single one of those animals was communicating something contrary to what the average person would assume. Yeah, but you knew not to, not to project our own communication style onto them. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, this was maybe like, maybe right when I joined on TikTok. I mean, this was probably last year. 
going through TikTok, my wife, we were going through TikTok and we came across a page. I don't even know what the handle is. I wouldn't want to give them any publicity, but it was a someone, it was of someone who had a pet spider monkey in a diaper running around. And it was so hard not to want to like this because you do, you see them running around, they're doing these human things, they're doing the dishes, they're eating ice cream. Like it's hard. My wife was like, oh my God, that's so cute. I'm like, honey, no, this is like, you have to understand this isn't right. But when you watch those videos, it, it I, I'm going to be honest, it's easy to get sucked in. 100% it's easy to get sucked in or like with capuchins, you know, um, it, it's very, very easy. So yes, be, be conscious of what you watch. I, uh, yeah, I would have to say. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, I think people often have good intentions, at least those of us who are maybe sharing or liking those photos might have good intentions. But I think it's really important when you see that sort of content to, to look at it and ask yourself, what does the person who's encouraging the animal to exhibit this behavior have to gain from it? And if the answer is likes and views and money, look a little closer think a little harder, ask the hard hitting questions and think about whether that's actually in that animal's interest. But this is okay. We're going to get really controversial, but I want to play the devil's advocate because you can have someone, let's say, let's use a spider monkey as an example in a diaper, whatever, or a, or a capuchin monkey. I mean, that animal that their owner is going to argue like i'm taking great care of this animal like their habitat in the wild is disappearing like how are you telling me this is abuse when i'm taking when i spend thousands on this spider monkey how do we because we, we we have to we have to say that because and you can have someone argue and say what's the difference between me doing this and then one in a zoo that's not interacted with Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. And I, that's what I'm talking about. These are, these are the hard-hitting questions that we should be asking ourselves and we should be having these discussions because that's a really, really good point. Um, I used to work in a zoo and uh, we had our critics for sure, people who thought, you know, these animals should be released, they should be living in the wild. And we had those conversations quite often trying to explain to people that the wild is not this... Um, you know, idealistic place that maybe it used to be. The wild is a place that is being degraded and fragmented and depleted and destroyed at an alarming rate. And these animals are, are suffering because of it. And so if an accredited zoo, and I do really want to stress an accredited zoo, uh, is able to provide a place for these animals um, to breed and, and to live and to raise money for conservation efforts, I think that that can be a really valuable thing. But the difference between an animal being kept in a responsible way in captivity versus that spider monkey running around in a little costume or the chimpanzee eating ice cream is that even if an animal is in captivity, I believe it should be encouraged to practice and exhibit natural behaviors. So what I mean by that is it should be offered opportunities to exhibit species typical behaviors that its counterparts in the wild would be as well. So for example, if this species is one that is arboreal in the wild, are you in captivity providing it with opportunities to climb? If this animal lives in a social group in the wild, does it have partners in captivity or are you keeping it alone? If this species is a predator in the wild, are you providing it with opportunities 
that trigger that uh, or stimulate that predatory experience. And this isn't just my belief system. There have been studies on this that show that the physiological and psychological well-being of animals in captivity, as well as their reproductive, uh, reproductive success, is improved through enriching opportunities that stimulate those behaviors. And there's lots of reasons for this. I mean, a big one is that in the wild, animals engage in a lot of exploratory behavior. Information seeking is something that's key to their survival in the wild and therefore is, is ingrained in them. And so often those exploratory behaviors are not encouraged in captivity because we anticipate captive animals' needs for them. In the wild, for example, they might spend hours and hours a day foraging for food. In captivity, you give them breakfast in a bowl, it takes them five minutes to eat. What are they gonna do with the rest of the day? They're gonna sit around and they're gonna be bored, right? Mm -hmm. Another thing is in the wild, animals have an element of control by engaging in those behaviors. If they're cold, they might make a nest. If they're hungry, they search for food. If they're scared, they can go hide. In captivity, we take a lot of opportunities for them to do those things away, leading to feelings of stress and anxiety. So what responsible um, keepers of animals will do is they'll provide what we call enrichment. And enrichment can take on a lot of different forms, but it's essentially some sort of positive stimulus that you're adding to that animal's environment to help to mimic or recreate some of those natural experiences. So working at the zoo, these are a couple uh, examples that we had. For our apes, incredibly intelligent animals, we used puzzle feeders. So this might be an object or a box or something that they have to use their hands and use their brains to manipulate, to solve a puzzle to get to that food inside. This keeps them busy, it keeps them engaged, it keeps them curious, stimulating that complex brain. For our meerkats, we would have uh, tunnels for them to crawl through, uh, dirt mounds for them to dig. Even though they were captive, they were kept busy all day by digging and tunneling the same way that their conspecifics in the wild would do. For our bears, we would do what's called a scatter feed. So while they were on one end of their enclosure and couldn't see what the keepers were doing, the keepers would go and they would hide their food at different heights in different areas and in different ways throughout the enclosure. So that when the bears were put back into that space, they could spend all day using their powerful noses trying to sniff out the location of that food. And so enrichment is a really powerful way to help to bring out some of those positive natural behaviors in those animals instead of resorting to what a lot of, you know, maybe traditional circuses or social media stars will do, which is encouraging the animals to do things that might be fun for us to watch, but are in no way beneficial to that animal's well-being. So it's a really complicated area. I hope that answers your question. That's kind of my thoughts on that. Yeah, it's, it's a sticky, sticky subject. And social media, oh my God. And it's, 
we're living in a world where if you're judged on, you know, like by the amount of followers you have and you have some major accounts who are using animals and it's just like, and it's just not for the good. And it's, uh, people do need to be aware of, um, of what they're doing and a really good thing. And I guess I learned this from Jack Hanna is that the way to tell if someone is like truly like, let's say truly passionate about something, whether it's animals, whether it's whatever, would they still be doing it if the cameras were off, if the phone wasn't yeah. there, if you weren't filming a TikTok video, if you weren't filming an Instagram story, and if you can truly sit with yourself and say, absolutely, then you're on the right track. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And asking those questions is so, is so critical because, you know, on, on the flip side of this is sometimes sometimes a behavior that an animal exhibiting is totally okay and totally natural and people would come at us with uh, criticisms and questions and, and concern saying, you know, is that animal being well cared for? It doesn't look like it to me. So that's kind of the flip side. I always thought it was quite funny at the zoo. Um, the people who most often expressed concern for the animals were often people who knew the least about them. <laughs> so yes. for example, some someone might say to me, that cougar must be so lonely. It's so cruel of you to keep him alone. Well, anyone who knows anything about cougars knows that they are solitary creatures. They're solitary and they like Chardonnay. <laughs> okay, that was funny. Sorry, I had to lighten the mood. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. I'll okay. give you that. Um, but yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, this, this might look lonely to you. You might be lonely sitting by yourself, but that's actually their preference. They would be more stressed in a social setting or uh, another funny one. I worked with raptors and people would say things like that owl looks angry to me. He must be unhappy. Well, owls are pretty interesting actually in that, uh, they can't move their eyes. They're their sockets are actually fixed and placed so they can't move their eyes and their eyes and beak make up most of their face. So they don't actually make facial expressions. An owl can't look angry. An owl can communicate angry, absolutely. But the way that they do that is by clacking their beaks, mm -hmm. fluffing up their, their body feathers. Um, they might kind of move the, the feather tufts on top of their head or their facial disc. So if you know the species well, you can you can read anger. They for sure express anger. But yeah. do they do that by frowning like a cartoon character? No, they don't. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it's important to have concern for animals, but sometimes that concern can be misplaced if it's miseducated. Yeah, I had a friend who worked with great apes, and so many times when people would see orangutans in exhibits, they have this kind of the sad, frowning-looking face, and that's that's just, that's their face. But people would yep. interpret like, oh my god, the animal is so sad, and this is so sad, it's in a zoo, and it's just, yeah, we have to be really aware of that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the best question to ask yourself before you assume how an animal is feeling is to ask yourself, do I actually know enough about the ecology and ethology of this specific species to be interpreting something as complex as behavior and emotion? And if the answer to that question is no, is there someone credible who I can ask and consult for more information about that species? And I wish you could talk to a lot of people on my social media feeds. Man, I've been just 
been hounded lately it's and it, it, it's funny it's like this it's like this um it's i mean it's like great in one in one per, one thing but the more and more your stuff is seen on social media the more you get those types of people okay. and i'll have people who message me and look at my alligators basking and say this is so sad they're not moving this is so and it's like this is what they do this is <laughs> like it's yeah. like i want to reach through my phone and be like this is what crocodilians do. They are basking, they're digesting their food, they're getting sun. Like they do not want to exert the energy, but it's once again, yes, if you are trying to comment at a zoo or you are trying to leave a a mean Instagram comment, please just yeah, take a second and be like, do I have enough knowledge to interpret this behavior? Absolutely. Behavior is complex. There's entire fields of science devoted to it. So if you are not the expert on that species, uh, find one, you know, do your research and, and ask some questions before you jump to those conclusions. But, you know, it's, it's not all negative. Anthropomorphism can, can play really positive roles in, in our lives and the lives of animals too. So I, I do want to kind of shift gears towards that because um, there's a lot of good there too. And, and the biggest argument, the biggest case for anthropomorphism is that it builds empathy. It builds empathy and it builds compassion towards species, which we need more of in this world. <laughs> we need more empathy for for everyone, but we especially need it for the animals right now who whose whose populations in the wild are in decline, um, and who are really struggling to survive on this planet. And you know, I think that that can start at a really young age, and and for a lot of people, it starts in childhood. You know, we have animals featured in some of our favorite TV shows. And if you think of uh, cartoon characters, everything from Donald Duck and Winnie the Pooh and um, Peter Rabbit and Paddington Bear and Simba from The Lion King and Bambi and Dumbo, you know, animals at that age can be a really powerful way for, for kids to understand their own emotions. You know, that's a time when you're trying to learn about the world and um, to have these cute, cuddly, friendly creatures helping to explain things to you. Um, it can be really beneficial to our development, but it also helps to forge those connections with animals at a young age. And pets are really great for this too, because anybody who's ever had a pet knows that over time you come to understand that they do have moods and they do have personalities and they have thoughts and they have feelings and there's an ebb and a flow and they're so complex. And so... I think that uh, it can be a really great way for us to connect to these creatures in a way that hopefully we can then extend into conservation efforts as adults. So anthropomorphism has played a role in conservation. Unfortunately, what the literature has shown is that we have a significant bias in favor of animals that are similar to us. Mm. So whether that's uh, physically, behaviorally, cognitively we lean towards animals that act like us that look like us and that are related to us and this can be a little tricky when you're trying to raise conservation awareness for animals like fish insects amphibians mm. or reptiles who maybe don't evoke those same those same feelings but what's uh uh, conservation groups like the World Wildlife Fund <laughs> figured out a long time ago is that we can actually kind of use the cute, charismatic, cuddly animals 
to help the lesser known or less popular ones. Um, so a great example of this is, is giant pandas. Uh, giant pandas have, have been endangered for a long time. And, uh, you know, they're endemic to China. And so um, when, when this decline got really bad, the Chinese government partnered with the World Wildlife Fund um, and they developed this enormous public campaign to try to raise awareness for the panda. And this was huge. I remember when I was a kid, I, I remember all of this happening, seeing it on TV and reading about it in books. And the giant panda really quickly became what we call an umbrella species because they are a large bodied animal with a large range and a large charismatic personality. It doesn't hurt that they're adorable. They kind of became what some people call a flagship species mm -hmm. for, uh, for the region and efforts to help the pandas and to protect their habitat actually ended up indirectly helping a lot of other animals in that region, like the golden snub-nosed monkey and the water deer and the red panda and, and others. Um, now, this effort has been criticized by some people because usually these rare animals have uh, really specific uh, requirements, um, which aren't going to benefit other animals. So, for example, you know, if we <laughs> turned a huge region into a massive bamboo forest, that would be great for the giant pandas, but it would do little to nothing uh, for the, the Asiatic black bear, which mm -hmm. shares that habitat, but not that food source. So um, absolutely, it's, it's not a perfect plan. It's not a great place to stop our conservation efforts. We do need multi-species consideration when it comes to uh, ecosystem protections, but it's a really great place to start because it got people thinking about the relationships between these animals and about some of the species that maybe we have been neglecting in our effort to only protect the adorable, cuddly, charismatic megafauna. Absolutely. I love that. Well, listen, we are nearing an hour of the show, mm -hmm. so I have a question for you. Will you join yeah. me for the Patreon-only after show so we can go over and talk about this some more? That sounds awesome. Oh my God, it's awesome. Okay, so listeners, if you want to join the Patreon-only after show, you can just head on over to patreon.com slash animals to the max. I will put the links in the show notes. Uh, Tiana, can you please provide your handles, your social media feeds one more time for people listening so they can follow you and consume your content? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram doing wildlife art and education at this wild fauna. Awesome. I love following too. And and you do a lot of outdoor stuff, a lot of hiking stuff. So I have to say, yeah. very outdoorsy. I enjoy I enjoy following you. So thank you so much. I hope you join us over in the after show. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.